This episode is brought to you by Circle, the issuer of USDC, one of the most trusted stablecoins in the digital asset industry. You'll be hearing all about them later in the show. We dumped $6.5 trillion in fiscal stimulus into the U.S. economy in like an 18-month period. <laughs> now, we're do- now we're all running around, sitting around talking about inflation 18 months later. Like, of course we are. <laughs> it's really not that, it's not that complicated. And I think we keep trying to complicate it as investors by trying to you know, win pivot, win Lambo, win this, win that. And the reality is until we start to see significant deterioration in the economy, we're not going to see significant deterioration in inflation and we're not going to see a Fed pivot of any consequence. Darius, uh, I'd love to get your opinion. Maybe we can start with this concept of liquidity, right? People have been hearing all about that. But what I want to do for the viewers is basically kind of create a framework for how to understand the tightening liquidity cycle, right? So obviously the Fed has been tightening uh, in an extremely pronounced way since the start of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to get a sense of what that cycle sort of looks like and where we are in the cycle. So I'll kind of start with that high-level directive and turn it over to you. Yeah, absolutely. So it's very clear that we're in a liquidity cycle downturn. Uh, it's the opposite of what we experienced basically from uh, the early part of 2020 through the end uh, of 2021, just in terms of the market response. Um, when we talk about net liquidity, it's actually a very specific function uh, at 42 Macro. You know, we've done a lot of research, we've been doing this for a long time, and tried to understand the things that actually matter most to predicting financial market responses um, as it relates to the different levers that the Fed and the Treasury can pull to either make it easier for hedge funds, you know, et cetera, um, you know, folks in the shadow banking sector to lever up or make it more difficult for them to lever up and maintain uh, existing and legacy positions. So um, how we track net liquidity is through the lens of the Fed's balance sheet, uh, but also subtracting out two of the more important variables that actually uh, tend to um, tend to contribute to net liquidity increases when they decline and tend to contribute to net liquidity drain uh, when they increase. And those two variables are uh, the Treasury general account balance, uh, which is effectively the Treasury's checking account at the Fed. You know, when they take in tax receipts, they raise debt. Uh, they, you know, that's where they park that excess money that they've taken, they've confiscated from the private sector prior to making expenditures and 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 in um, investments. And then the other, uh, uh, which has become equally important in, in recent years, uh, is this the reverse, the growth of reverse, the Fed's reverse rebuild facility. Um, that is a effectively what is a black hole. Uh, from the perspective of the financial markets in the sense that the funds that access that 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 facility one are already in very short duration instruments to begin with um if you look at you know kind of money market fund concentration on the short end of the treasury curve commercial paper etc uh these are you know these are types of assets under one year in uh in expiry that these these types of funds can access but it's even a step further when those funds uh, allocate um, um, money with the Fed, uh, because again, the Fed is not an entity that's going to take, you know, that 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 repo or, or that you know T bill, et cetera, and you know turn around and 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 relend it in the in the markets and you know kind of create this daisy chain, if you will, of rehypothecation, et cetera, that tends to be supportive for asset markets and the broader economy. So um, it's effectively a black box. Before we even get into that, just so I can, uh, you know, I have the brain of a five-year-old, so I'd love to try to explain things <laughs> in those terms as well. So the way of that course. I think of uh, the Treasury General account is basically the checking yep. account for the U.S. government, right? So 100%. the way I understand liquidity there is when the government is spending money, when the Treasury, uh, the TGA account is going down, that's liquidity mm-hmm. positive. When there's money yep. flowing into the checking account, it means that the government isn't spending money, so it's liquidity negative. I know you're about to get into this, but like, Help me understand how the RRP works because it's this black hole. There's an enormous amount of assets. There's like $2 trillion, right, at the peak. 
What does that mean for if the RRP is going up? Do we think that's is that liquidity negative, or how do, how do those dynamics actually work for the reverse repo facility? Well, so it's it's it's, it's negative for a couple of reasons. One, mm-hmm. um, just from a fundamental standpoint, the the mere fact that there's an excess demand for something like a reverse repo facility um, at the Fed suggests that there's a, a sort of a, a lack of demand for taking the different types of risk amongst investors in financial markets. You know, you can take duration risk uh, in terms of, you know, extending, um, going out on the treasury curve, et cetera, going out to buy longer duration assets, you know, long duration tech, um, example, digital uh, cryptocurrencies as well. Um, so that's one risk that investors are obviously shunning. Um, credit risk is a risk they could be shunning as well in terms of not wanting to capitalize uh, certain more risky businesses, uh, industries, et cetera, at the various points of the, the economic cycle. Um, there's also liquidity risk. You know, how much money do you want your, your funds tied up? In longer term investments, you know, that don't have liquidity, um, like things like private equity, venture capital, et cetera. Um, there's all sorts of risks, there's currency risks, there's all these different risks that investors are looking around the world and saying the confluence of the Fed tightening, tightening more than other central banks and peer central banks and a, and a pretty obvious, you know, globally, a globally coordinated deceleration in terms of growth. All those things are contributing to investors, A, wanting to park their money in very short duration securities namely the T-bill market here in the U.S. or, you know, short in the German boom curve, et cetera, over in Europe, et cetera. Um, and one, so that's, that's, that's step one. That's the issue is already, that's already an issue in and of itself. The secondary issue is that there's been a structural shortage and undersupply of treasury bills relative to the demand, the excess demand that is being generated by all these different macroeconomic factors. And because of that sort of um, lack of supply for treasury bills, investors in money market funds, or you know, money market funds themselves have taken all that excess cash that you know investors are sitting on and pumped it into the Treasury's um, reverse fuel facility. Um, and again, I mentioned you know the reason this is a is, is negative because again the the structural undersupply of of Treasury bills means we're not really capitalizing the U.S. government to do stuff for us like you know dig holes and build, build bridges and roads and tunnels and pay for the fire department, et cetera, et cetera. We're literally just taking the money from the private sector. And putting it on the Fed's balance sheet, and that that mm. creates a really, um, you know, kind of a, a it really does drain liquidity from the economy and the financial markets. So that extra two point two trillion dollars there about is money that could, in theory, be used to capitalize, you know, things like stock market or Bitcoin, but it's not. Mm. So Darius, help me help me explain something, right? Because you hear these two very different things, right? The the worry, right, and what I think most people think would cause a Fed pivot is illiquidity in the Treasury market. Right. Uh, that's kind of the if, if you had to put a mandate above even a mandate that supersedes the dual employment, uh, the, the dual mandate of the Fed, it's making the Treasury appear solvent. Right. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, there's all this talk that you kind of hear, right, about how uh, who's going to be bidding at, you know, at auction. Like what are the next couple auctions going to look like? We're supposed to run trillion dollar deficits, right, going into the future. Who's going to want to underwrite that as an investor? At the same time, though, I just heard you say there's a structural undersupply actually of treasuries. And there's so much demand for basically short dated paper that's earning some yield that people are parking it in this black hole at the treasury. And we're just paying off, uh, you know, XYZ rate. So. Help me understand well, these well, two a, ideas. Th- of- there's a reason for this, though, right? And because of, because of that structural undersupply, the yields on T-bill ish, uh, mature the T-bill instruments are actually lower than the yields you could uh, you can actually take um, the yields being offered by the Fed for this overnight money. And so you look around mm-hmm. as an investor, it's like you know I'm, I'm picking numbers out of a hat here. Like you can get three percent from the Fed overnight, or you can go buy a Treasury T-bill that's you know maturing in one day or you know two weeks. And it's actually a yield that's lower than that 3%. 
So just as a rational economic agent, you're naturally going to find yourself flowing funds um, to into that into that facility to the extent you have access to it. Not everyone has access to it. It's it's really just the large money market players. So can you give us uh you know your sort of view on where we are in the liquidity tightening cycle? Because you know for for a long for again the the entire year we basically said that the Fed is embarking on QT right, which basically entails rolling off uh you know long term treasuries and mortgage backed securities which are on its balance sheet. So we've started to see that balance sheet finally go down. At the same time, they're making money more expensive by raising short term interest rates in general, uh, and certainly asset markets have reacted to that. So I'd I'd love to get a sense of. I'll just ask the one part question here. Where do you think we are? How much further is there to go, do you think, in the liquidity tightening cycle? Uh, so uh, unfortunately for for those of us who are probably hoping for Santa Claus rally or something that looks like a, a bottom in markets and a sustained rally from here, you know, I would, um, you know, we would unfortunately take the other side of that, just given, you know, some of these liquidity cycle dynamics that we're highlighting. So, you know, if I can just kind of give you the headline and then kind of throw some um, statistics at you on the other side of that, you know, I would have to guess, you know, again, we're, we're guessing here because, again, we don't have, uh, you know, a real crystal ball into where Fed policy is going to wind up. Um, you know, we have views on that based on our, our forecast for inflation and things of that nature, but there's no real guarantee, right? So uh, our best guesstimate on when, you know, we, we you know, where we are in this liquidity cycle is kind of like inning seven, probably bottom of the seventh inning, um, if you will, mm-hmm. in terms of the tightening that we're likely to see. Uh, and, and, and for those of you, I know this is an international program, so <laughs> this is a baseball reference. So there are nine, there are nine innings in baseball. <laughs> I've actually had people tell me like, when you say that, what do you mean? <laughs> like, so I'll make sure that they're aware. Um, All right. Uh, let, anyway, let me so. try to make this international. That's about the 75th, 80th minute of a soccer game. Right? Yeah, exactly. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Right, <laughs> exactly. Uh, go USA. Um, and so I'm going to get smoked anyway, but who cares? Uh, so we're probably like somewhere in the bottom of the seventh inning. And, and the reason I say that is, is we're like, you know, we're a lot closer to the end of the Fed tightening cycle from a rate policy rate standpoint. And if you look at money market uh, funds, it has the uh, Fed, you know, the, the, the highest probability, the modal outcome suggests that the Fed, uh, the Fed funds already may peak around 5% um, at in the February 1st meeting. Um, so that's another 175 basis points from, from where we are today. So um, that, that's, 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 we're getting close to the end of the tightening, physical tightening cycle in terms of policy rates. But obviously, quantitative tightening is likely to remain ongoing unless, again, all hell breaks loose in the economy or financial markets along the way. Um, the reason I say, you know, we might see an inflection in the net liquidity function is because, you know, you might start to see some positive developments on the reverse repo facility front. You know, once we get close to the end of the Fed tightening cycle, once it, or once it, more importantly, once it's confirmed that the Fed is no longer, you know, hiking interest rates and that surprise risk of upside interest rate hikes, right? Because that's what we've been dealing with all year is we get to a place in the year on a calendar and the market says, okay, that's it. And then we get another inflation report and it's like, oh, no, that's not it. We got to reprice um, the terminal Fed funds rate higher. And so, uh, you know, until we get to the end of that particular process, it's likely that all the excess funds uh, that have flowed into money markets and have subsequently, uh, as a function of that, you know, kind of uh, found up, in the, they found their way in the Fed's reverse repo facility are going to start to leak out and capitalize other things. They're going to start to take different types of risks. Right now, like the, that money is telling you that people want zero duration, zero credit risk, zero liquidity risk. It's just like, get me as far away from taking risk as possible. And I do believe that once at the bare minimum from a Fixed income standpoint, um, you know, you're might, you're likely to start to see a bid return to to, to bonds, um, you know, kind of in you know some point uh, early next year, just as a function of you know the market getting comfortable with the fact that this process is concluded from a from a rate surprise standpoint, policy rate surprise standpoint, 
but also we're actually you know starting to get more signals, more confirmation economically um, that we are likely to head to for an actual recession in the U.S. economy. Um, you know, a couple signals on that we got last week. We had the three-month ten-year yield curve uh, finally invert. Um, that, in our opinion, is a much more um, you know more accurate predictor uh, of recessions. Uh, has a much more tighter lead time uh, with respect to recession. Um, you know, you're t- anywhere between 12 to 18 months. Uh, after that signal, um, now again, it signal needs to the, the curve needs to stay persistently inverted uh, for it to really generate a signal. But we do believe it will remain persistently inverted. And then we got a couple of data points, um, you know, from the conference board last week as well. If you look at their uh, consumer confidence index, there's a few uh, statistics in there that we, um, you know, we we create uh, using some of the um, uh, time series. One of them is the spread between the um, expectations index relative to the present situation index. And that spread is as deep, you know, remains as deeply negative, um, you know, kind of as it's been, you know, really in the history of the time series. And every time we've seen a, a persistent and neg- a persistent inversion in that in that time series, in that in that spread between the present situation expectations index, um, we've always had a recession. This is data going back to the 1960s. And then they have another couple of time series in that uh, indicator in that in that in that release as well. Um, there's a labor differential survey that we create using the the index um, for jobs a plentiful six months ahead relative to jobs not so plentiful, and that spread uh, has declined. I want to say about 15 points off the May, the March uh, uh, all-time high. It's actually all-time high. It reached in March in terms of how good the labor market was, how good consumers felt about the labor market. Um, and historically, we've never seen a 15-point spread in the matter of seven months in this in this time mm. series um, without an actual recession. So you know that we're headed for a recession. It's probably not going to happen as soon as in, a lot of investors anticipate it will, and that and that is an issue as it relates to the resilience of core inflation pressure in the economy. Can you explain why that's an issue? Oh, it's as simple as this because you know. <laughs> so empirically, this we know. You know, you inflation is a lagging indicator. We can see that when we study cycles. You know, relative to the GDP cycle. Um, you know, relative to the you know various measures of growth. Inflation tends to be a lagging indicator. In fact, core inflation, wage inflation, those are typically the most of the lag, the most lagging indicators. Lagging even the employment, the labor market, which we all know to be um, kind of notoriously lagged relative to to changes in, in policy, changes in growth. Um, so that's an issue because it, it probably means that as long as the economy remains resilient, and we got plenty of data last week to support that. You know, three handle on on, on Q3 GDP. We saw real PCE, the broadest measure of, of consumer spending in the economy, accelerate, you know, to around two and a half percent, you know, or sorry, when sorry, it was two percent um, um, on a real basis. You know, the, you know, these are the types of statistics that tells you that, hey, look, this economy has some juice and some resiliency. And as long as it has some juice and some resiliency, just understanding the sort of historical relationships between, you know, these various cycles, the growth cycle, the inflation cycle, the policy cycle, and the various leads and lags with, you know, these things, which is stuff, you know, we, we've spent a tremendous amount of time in studying and educating our, our subscribers on at 42 Macro, it's very unlikely that we see some materially positive developments on the inflation front, right? You know, this is something mm-hmm. we've been banging the table on for months, right? Core inflation on a three-month annualized basis Pick your indicator. It could be core PCE, core CPI, you know, median CPE, median CPI, trim mean PCE, you know, sticky CPI. All these various you know measures that you know do a pretty good job of of, of eliminating a lot of the noise in this time series. They're all tracking anywhere between four and a half to eight and a half percent on a three month annualized basis. You know, you know, some of the ones that I think are most important if you think about core uh, inflation, kind of the leading indicators of core inflation, median uh, CPI, trim mean PCE. I mean, you know, these numbers are six, seven, eight percent still on an annualized basis, not on a year over year basis. Year over year, in my yeah. opinion, is a very irrelevant 
moot statistic in the context of trying to identify where the Fed is likely to change its policy setting. Um, you know, the stuff. And so this is a real big issue because it means we're not going to be anywhere where we like to be anytime soon on the inflation front, which very much sort of ups the ante on a Fed that is, you know, by a lot of market participants is really expected to to, to pivot and, and, and create and, and make that net liquidity function start to go in the other way um, in terms of the signals that the Fed would be sending to cause, you know, a significant decline in the reverse repo facility, um, you know, reverse repo facility balance. I think this is pretty similar to a dynamic that we discussed with with Eric Basmajian uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago. But basically, you know, the Fed is looking for these indicators that inflation is slowing down and the very lagging indicators, right? So it's things like unemployment, CPI. Those are real economy type factors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that they're what they're trying to influence is monetary policy, which happens way here at the beginning of the cycle. So if I'm interpreting you correctly, it's actually more bearish than people are maybe anticipating because the Fed isn't going to ease off on everything that they're, that they're doing on the monetary front until they see real progress on the real economy front, these very lagging indicators that they're looking at, unemployment, CPI inflation, that sort of thing. So until we start to see some trending right in the direction that the Feds wants to see on these very uh, you know, lagging indicator type things, they're going to make it a very unpleasant place or an unpleasant time to be an investor. Is that about yeah. the size of it? That is absolutely it, and 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 it's. I would take it a step further and say, until we see some real imp- uh, improvement, and I'm using improvement in air quotes because what I mean by improvement, we need to see the economy actually slow. Like the economy is right. growing gangbusters still. I mean, if you look at um, the conference board's measure of coincident economic indicators, looking at income, production, uh, employment, and spending, um, the four different categories at the B, uh, the NBER, which is the committee that dates the business cycle, um, that looks at. You know, that number is at 3.3% on a three-month annualized basis. Like, I mean, that's more than double the pre-COVID trend. Like, we are not only growing above trend, we're growing above trend on a more <laughs> at a pace that's like 2x, more than 2x the pre-COVID trend. Uh, if you look at it on a coincident to lagging indicator basis, you know, non-norm pay, or if you look at the labor market, um, you know, the one measure we track that has been very instructive and in kind of helping, um, you know, subscribers, you know, kind of predict some of these moves in, in, in policy which is the private sector aggregate income um, when you productize uh, job growth, inc- uh, wages and, and um, hours worked. And we're still tracking at 7.6%, you know, which compares to a pre-COVID trend of somewhere around like mid force. You know, so we're nearly double there in terms of the, the total amount of income consumers are generating from the labor market. And so those two dynamics alone, just if you look at those, you know, the labor market and, and consumption are telling you that, hey, look, we got a lot of demand, demand for uh, workers, demand for buying stuff in this economy still, because, again, it goes back to the root cause of this inflation problem, at least here in the U.S., which is during a period of time where we can observe a significant, de- you know, uh, significantly lower level of, of, of supply globally, both in terms of supply of goods, but also in terms of supply of workers, uh, COVID being the primary driver of that, we dumped $6.5 trillion in fiscal stimulus into the U.S. economy in like an 18-month period. <laughs> now we're do, now we're all running around, sitting around talking about inflation 18 months later. Like, of course we are. <laughs> it's really not that, it's not that complicated. And I think we keep trying to complicate it as investors by trying to you know, win pivot, win Lambo, win this, win that. And the reality is until we start to see significant deterioration in the economy, we're not going to see significant deterioration in inflation and we're not going to see a Fed pivot of any consequence. Yeah. You know, uh, this was kind of outlined in a letter, uh, a, an update from the CIO at Bridgewater, who outlined one of the challenges for the Fed, which which might be right the way that it looks like they're 
implementing their their policy rights, obviously through monetary channels. And initially, what we're kind of seeing is the the contraction in the value of financial assets because of raising interest rates, right? And then I want to get into this later, but that kind of for various reasons like trickles through into the real economy. Um, and it seems like what everyone is still waiting for here a year into this tightening cycle is, you hear this expressed a lot, when is Fed pivot? When Lambo? When is it all going to work again? So basically the idea is as soon as the Fed stops with their draconian rate hike problem, right? As soon as they start to see that progress, right? Maybe it's a little ticking up in the unemployment. Maybe it's a little bit lower in terms of wage growth. Maybe it's like whatever it is, maybe CPI finally starting to slow those really sticky uh, parts of CPI as well. As soon as that starts to move in the right direction, and if the Fed even hints with easing off, right? Now they've set a pretty high bar for themselves. They keep raising it at 75 basis points each FOMC, right? As soon as they indicate to the market that hey, maybe we're actually going to at least even pause right with where we're at. There's a risk that the market will interpret that as a very bullish action. And then that's just going to send everything higher. And then all of the work that they've essentially done is going to start to reverse. Do you, do you see kind of the risk that we're talking about there? Do you agree with that? That, that is 100% the risk, and that's more than likely going to happen. I mean, we've done a tremendous amount of work at trying to understand – bear markets as it relates to the liquidity cycle, um, you know, in terms of identifying, you know, what causes them to trough, how long do they trough in relation to the changes in liquidity cycle, changes in inflation, changes in growth, et cetera. And one thing we found is that, you know, markets tend to bottom right around that inflection in policy. And this is looking at the 17 bear markets that we've had going all the way back to, um, you know, to the Great Depression. Um, they, you know, on, on a median basis in that bear markets, they tend to bottom you know, roughly one month after that inflection in, uh, in policy. And, you know, you typically, you know, ideally you are there for that, for that pivot because the returns, you know, the early returns on those, that, that inflection off the lows in these bear markets tends to be quite, quite forceful on a median basis. I want to say in the first three months, S&P's up 21% in those, in those instances. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, obviously Bitcoin's going to have a beta of, you know, two to three X on that. So, you know, maybe not two to three X, but certainly one and a half to two X on something like that. So it's not something you're going to want to ignore as an investor. The problem is, is that, you know, I think investors are going to lose a lot of money along the way thinking that, you know, this was it. A lot of investors in August thought the Fed had pivoted. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm, I think we're, we're, you and I are going to have a conversation three or four months from now and we're going to say a lot of investors in October said the Fed pivoted. <laughs> you know, like it's the it's the same problem over and over again. Now we're getting closer to the end of the process in terms of, um, you know, the, the draconian tightening, et cetera. But, you know, one thing that gives us confidence that this Fed is not going to be in a hurry um, you know, to kind of you know, acquiesce to that, to this this sort of implied expectation amongst a lot of investors, um, you know, this win Lambo expectation is because we continue to see risk asset prices are being heavily correlated to inflation expectations, both, um, you know, shorter term and longer term. Um, you know, if you mm -hmm. look at, you know, the 10 year tip show, for example, you know, it got down to as low as 2% at the lows of September, early October. And now we've rallied back up to two hundred uh, two spot five percent two 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 you know uh, two two fifty. So I mean it's fifty basis point move in the ten year uh, real in the ten year break even inflation expectation in the market just because we put on a few hundred points in the S and P. You know, and so yeah. I think the Fed is going to be acknowledging this and observing this, and they've seen this movie before, right? We've certainly seen this, and not the first time we've seen this movie. Um, and oh by the way, this is all occurring at a time where the federal government. If you look at the strategic petroleum reserve or the strategic midterm reserve, as some people joke, <laughs> you know, that thing that, that that's, you know, that's been something that's been positive <laughs> for the, right? Isn't that good? Uh, yeah. That's been something that's been very positive from an inflation expectation standpoint. That could go away, you know, as quickly as in the next few weeks 
um, when you start to see, I mean, if you look at our signals um, from a, from a volatility adjusted momentum signal perspective, crude oil actually broke from bearish, broke out to neutral. It was bearish for an extended period of time and it's now back to neutral. It's telling you that the volatility in the asset class is really starting to die down. And you actually might start to see, you know, uh, systematic investors, CTAs, et cetera, really start to increase their allocations to that particular um, exposure. That's not going to be good if you have headline inflation moving in the wrong direction again at the same time where we have not seen, you know, kind of enough weakness in the economy to anticipate any material, materially positive developments on core. Um, so that just call that out. I speak to a lot of companies in both crypto and traditional finance. And as it turns out, they share a common problem. They need a one-stop shop for treasury management and fast international payments around the globe. Circle's USDC is one of the most trusted and widely used stablecoins in the industry. At the time of this recording, USDC has 50 billion in circulation, one and a half million users worldwide, and is settling more than $5 trillion. That's trillion with a T worth of value. USDC has quickly become one of the easiest ways to move your money around the globe. On top of all that, Circle is building products for companies and institutions that want to adopt this technology. That means payment transactions, fraud management tools, digital asset custody, and a whole other suite of services. Here's one of my other favorite parts about Circle. They post monthly audits of their reserves, which means that I don't have to trust. I can verify that my money is safe, transparent, in a compliant manner. Helps me sleep easy at night, you know? As a seamless trusted digital dollar, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the entire global financial system. And you know what? Don't trust me, you can verify. Check out their recently published Transparency Hub on the website. It's a great update to Circle's content in USDC, outlines everything from USDC weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, and blog posts written by their exact team. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, back to the show. People tend to refer to two periods, right, where we've seen inflation in the United States in relatively recent history, right, which is the 40s and the 70s. And people mm-hmm. say, oh, yeah, there, there was inflation during that, during that period of time. But if you go back and look at, you know, headline CPI year over year, it wasn't this uniform, you know, 7.5% or something like that. It would be there was one year it was 15%, then the next year it was 2% or something like that. Uh, you know, very famously, there was this stop-start inflation that you got – in the 70s, persisting into the late 80s when we transitioned from Burns to Volcker, right? And he caused two recessions, you know, which were yeah. which were relatively severe. And there was this there was this stop start problem, which is everything that we're outlining. So, you know, my question to you is, is that it seems like that's sort of what you're advocating for, like this very long and drawn out process where the market has to finally accept that, uh, you know, bad news isn't necessarily good news. And every time there's a slowing in the economy doesn't mean the Fed is going to blast liquidity into the market and rip risk assets into infinity seems like that is what has to be stomped out and that's just a longer process that takes in some case you know historically it's taken a decade i mean is that kind of what you're advocating for what's kind of the through line for how we get through this oh so that's an even more loaded question so i'll say just as it relates to this particular market cycle like next six months next nine months next 12 months you know there's going to be a tradable low uh tradable bottom in our opinion um associated with the sort of like the coast is clear from a right now we're still not it's not it's not clear to investors that we are done with the process of terminal fed funds rate expecta- expectations going higher and we're not net done with the process of the last hike being something that's on the calendar and you know that's it you know right. if we get two bad inflation reports between now and the December 14th fed meeting then we're going to be talking about even higher terminal Fed funds rate expectation than five percent, and maybe hiking as 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 as, as late as um, you know March and April in terms of um, or sorry March and May in terms of uh, 
in terms of that that so that process again we're still in the process of not figuring of trying to figure that out um, when we get to the point of that of figuring that out I think it'll remove a significant amount of sort of tail risk from the bond market um, you know if you look at sort of these inflation cycles um, you know we've done a lot of work on that as well you know there have been ten of these inflation cycles in the U.S. over the last hundred years where inflation um, peaked north of five percent where the where headline CPI with the peak rate of that particular cycle was north of 5%. And you know, historically speaking, on a three-month, six-month, 12-month forward basis, stocks are more or less flat on a median basis. You know, like this, like the inflation, the peak in inflation is usually not like the signal. You know, the signal was the inflection in the liquidity cycle, which we really care about. And I think because of, you know, kind of this, I want to say $2.2 trillion of dry powder out there on in terms of the reverse repo facility. That does represent a potential inflection point in net liquidity that may not necessarily be sponsored by the Fed, but it's very one, very much one that could actually, you know, take place, you know, irrespective of what the Fed is doing. Because again, we've seen the Fed, you know, bumble its its um its communication plenty of times before, so I wouldn't necessarily anticipate that that's not something that can't happen. Um, longer term, I, you sort of asked this question. I think it's important to kind of separate the medium term to longer term from this. Longer yeah. term, mm-hmm. we are very much of the view and have been all year. That the end of this process is going to result in another positive revision to the Fed's inflation mandate. Um, if you go back to the summer or the, the yeah, summer of 2020, um, right before Jackson Hole, in and around Jackson Hole, they the Fed revised its its labor market mandate to include you know to maximum inclusive employment. You know, thinking about sort of the, some of the more disaffected groups um, who've historically been kind of you know left behind um, with respect to the labor markets, and then they uh, changed the inflation target to an average inflation target. Um, you know, kind of trying to make up for the persistent shortfall of, of, that they've achieved in the previous, you know, decade or so. And so now we have this inflation, average inflation target with this um, maximum inclusive um, employment mandate. That's what allowed them and, and gave them the confidence to, quote unquote, let the economy run hot. Remember, we kept hearing that from them in 2020 and 2021. Do. Yeah, no, totally. And now we're now we are now this is the hot economy. <laughs> and now they're trying to deal with that, uh, deal with that issue. So. Um, ultimately, I think where we're going with this is by the time we get into the actual recession part of this this whole process, because again, it's a process, it's a multi-year process. You know, again, that three-month, ten-year yield curve inversion last month tells you that we're probably not going into recession until the end of next year earliest, maybe even 2024. And so, you know, this process by the time we get to this pr- end of this process, we're the fa- instead of talking about the unemployment rate going from 3.5 to five, we're going to be talking about it going from five to seven. And it's, and it's our belief, just based on the changes we've seen to the FOMC from a compositional standpoint, and also the actual changes because they rotate, the governors rotate, like Mary Daly, for instance, will be voting next year. She's very dovish, or at least historically has been. You know, It's very likely that that board, that chair, that committee is going to be you know looking around saying, do I really want to go from like 3% inflation to 2 and have to get, you know uh, see an unemployment back up another 200 basis points because of that? Or can I just stop here at three and stop here at five percent the unemployment rate? And I think if the answer is, you know, do we trade two hundred basis points of incremental, you know, job loss in terms of unemployment rate for an hundred basis points of incremental disinflation? I think the answer is very clearly no on that, and and it will be very clearly no on that from a political standpoint. Because don't forget, we'll be a lot closer to the twenty twenty four election at that point, and I don't think that they're going to get the same kind of support from the Biden administration on. You know, fighting inflation. You know, when there's real kind of cost, political cost at the line. Right now, there's no real political cost. In fact, we would argue fighting inflation is the number one thing they can do. The Democrats um, in charge can can do to actually help themselves at the polls. Um, that won't be the case. You know, when people are actually losing their jobs. You know, 18 months from now. Hmm. 
Darius, I'd love to get your thoughts on if and when you think funding costs for the government becomes an important factor here, right? So nope. right now, what we're discussing, <laughs> you don't think so? I, it's. I, I've been doing this. I've been doing this for 14 years. I've had probably well over 4,000 meetings across the buy side. I've not had one buy sider ask me about this kind of stuff. Not one time in, in over 4,000 meetings. It's it's the stuff of Fintuit, man. The U.S. government is at the very top of the world's capital structure. If it needs money, it gets money and it takes money from us or it makes the Fed print <laughs> or it makes uh, banks hold it hold more by changing, you know, regulatory requirements on capital requirements and things of that nature. There's so many different ways in which the U.S. government can capitalize itself. Now, if we're Chile or if we're Peru or some other country that doesn't, you know, you know, kind of is not a reserve currency, then this would be a very different conversation. I, I think it would be a much, much more different conversation. But uh, the fact that it's not, you know, the fact that we are the world's reserve currency, at least for you know a little while longer, because there's no feasible alternatives, this is not an issue. It's just it's a it's a talking point, not an issue. I hear you on that. And I, I've always kind of thought they're very extreme statements, especially on Twitter, that sort of get thrown out about the US is going to be bankrupt. And I, I just don't think there's a way that the US could be bankrupt. But if if I could maybe present, you know, poke with it with a slightly alternative viewpoint, which is Throughout the course of history, right, there have been other dominant empires, many of which were issuers of global reserve currencies at their time that sat at the relative top of the capital structure. One of the contributors, right, for what leads to these downfalls, right, is actually an enormous amount of debt that they can never fully repay. Uh, so maybe an example mm-hmm. of that, actually, the most recent issue of the reserve currency being the British Empire, UK. right? And yeah. pound sterling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the UK. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's not like they, they didn't fade into oblivion. If you go to London, things are still alive and well, but they are mm-hmm. no longer top dog. And you know, a, a big part of that, right? Not the entire reason, but like a big part of that is the financial mess that they got in, you know, pres- like leading up to and then eventually culminating with World War II when what the US did uh, in relation to that. So that's, that's the one thing I would put, because I, I agree with you. It's not like we're, the U.S. isn't going bankrupt tomorrow, but I, I do. I would say in the long term, there's a pretty good history, or uh, you know, set of data that that might support the idea that over a long period of time, even at the sovereign debt level, even at the sovereign level, even for the the top dog, at the time, debt does matter. Do you yeah. So so yes, of course, debt does matter. I'm not saying debt doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm saying interest expense doesn't matter. Like the, the yeah. level of debt definitely has a, a very significant influence on economic outcomes and also on, on, um, on market outcomes. I'm just saying focusing on interest expense as if you know that's going to be the trigger for the U.S. government to be in condition A or condition B. That's, 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 that's moot. It's moot. Yeah. Got it. A hundred percent. So maybe we can talk, maybe the connection here, because I want to get into your grid framework and maybe your outlook on some sort of medium or shorter term things. Like one of the reasons, right, why interest expense might actually matter is growth, right? U.S. Mm -hmm. isn't going to go bankrupt, but at the same time, if an enormous part of our working budget becomes, goes towards interest expense, it's just less capital that we can immediately allocate towards other more stimulative type policies, right? So I, I guess I'd love to get your standpoint. If you, maybe you could explain for the viewers who might not have heard our previous shows, what is the grid framework? And then I'd love to get kind of your your short to midterm outward look on just kind of growth in general. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll start with the grid framework because that's the easy one. Uh, we look at the world through regime segmentation lens um, to help us sort of um, identify, you know, different asset allocation pivots, portfolio construction uh, preferences as well. Um, and that framework is is really just the kind of marrying the, the two main factors that matter most in macro, which are the rate of change of growth and the rate of change of inflation. Um, we use that information in terms of, you know, tracking where we've been from the economic standpoint and more importantly, forecasting where we're likely to be um, based on, you know, some fairly sophisticated models 
um, you know, that framework, it, it really helps us, you know, kind of stay abreast and more importantly, front run some of these big inflections in monetary and fiscal policy. Um, that's really what the framework is designed to do is say, hey, it, you know, policymakers, you care about these two variables. We're going to beat you to the, the state because we're focused on the change in these variables. And by the time the state is bad or good enough for you to do something different, we'll have already front run you, which is what the markets are doing at all times, right? Um, so that's why we focus on the world through that lens. And so, you know, when you look at the U.S. economy, um, you know, kind of U.S. and global economies, you know, the U.S. is really already inflected into what we call deflation. That's where growth and inflation are slowing simultaneously. Now, growth and inflation are slowing from above trend paces. So um, in terms of, you know, front running changes in policy, you have to understand that that we are still very much above trend in a lot of these key indicators. And it's going to take a while for them to get to levels that sort of correspond to policymakers making changes, although based on the guidance we receive from the, the Fed, and more importantly, I think the dot plot, which you know just as a, a tangent, is a very important signal from my perspective that I don't hear enough investors talking about. The Fed is forecasting a 200 basis point decline in core PCE over the next 15 months. There's never been a 200 basis point decline in core PCE ever without a recession. The Fed is forecasting a 90 basis point increase in unemployment uh, in the unemployment rate over the next 15 months. There's never been a 90 basis point increase in the unemployment rate without a recession. The Fed knows this. There's 400 PhDs over there. They, they know this. And so I think they're implicitly targeting a recession, something that looks like a mild recession, in order to get you know the inflation dynamic under control. Um, and you know, and 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 so understanding that the, the likelihood that they respond to you know the to, to to lower levels of growth and inflation with outright easing is actually low because they're actually anticipating. They won't be surprised when it happens. You know, they'll be surprised if it gets way worse way sooner but i think the risk of it getting way worse way sooner is much lower than the risk of things staying too good for too long and that's um that's something we'll call out and that kind of leads me to the answer to your second question where are we in this this whole process now on, on terms of growth and it's you know when you look at like some of the things we track from a from a consumer balance sheet perspective like the amount of like i just i can't stress this enough the amount of cash sitting on on U.S. household balance sheets is unprecedented. I mean, I mean, obviously it's nominal, so like it, it's always unprecedented. It's not stationary time series, but it's it's beyond unprecedented. Like there's almost five trillion sitting in checkable deposits, like like your checking account, not your time savings where you don't have access to the funds for one, two, three, four, five years. Checking accounts. There's another two point seven trillion sitting in money market funds, and this is just household household balance sheets. And so you're talking about, you know, just, you know, just right around $8 trillion of cash just sitting around that could potentially be spent into the economy at any given time, right? There's a number of reasons why that money is there, right? We get, we dumped people, we gave people, <laughs> the government gave people money, um, whether it be STEMI checks, PPP loans to small businesses, you know, uh, SBA loans to small businesses, loan forgiveness, debt relief forgiveness, you know, there's all sorts of reasons not you know why all that excess cash is sitting there. Not the least of which we've had a buoyant and robust housing market. Some would call it a bubble in certain locations, and people who sold those homes are now sitting on a, a crap ton of cash, right? And so there's a lot of there's a lot of cash in the system right now. And if you look at it in terms of total assets, cash is now five percent of total household assets. We haven't seen that ratio be this high since the 1950s. Like it's usually somewhere around two to three percent. And so it's it's a lot. There's a lot of money, you know, like cash as a percent of um disposable personal income. Let me let me pull this up real quick. So I'm speaking to the right numbers for the audience here. But you know, I know that like uh, can't. Yes, yeah, sorry. Here we go. So cash as a percent of disposable personal income at 41. percent That's like 2,000 basis points higher than it's ever been. 
Um, if you look at household debt to disposable personal income, it's been very stable. It's somewhere around, you know, just like 85% for really the past five, six, seven years. You know, if you look at it where it was, you know, kind of heading into the uh, global financial crisis, you know, that number was right around you know, 115%. And so like household balance sheets in excellent shape. And then corporate balance sheets in excellent shape too. I mean, if you look at cat, corporate cash as a percent of their assets, you know, it's around 4%. You know, that's the highest number we've seen. Um, you know, it's been coming down over the last few quarters. But, you know, prior to the, the last – prior to this, you know, last few quarters is the highest number we've seen since the 50s. You look at inventories as a percent of total assets are only da- down at 6% of total assets. That's, you know, compares to a long-term mean of, of 9, 9 to 10%. You know, um, corporate debt as a percent of total financial assets is only right around 0.4%. That hasn't gone anywhere in two decades. And then you look at a uh, floating rate debt only at a uh, 33% of uh, total corporate debt. You know, that's, um, you know, it's down from, you know, pre previous cycle peak. So, you know, the, if you look at the, just from a sectoral balance sheet perspective, there, there's a lot of resilience still built up in this economy. And so again, I think the risk that we don't slow fast enough and the fed has to continue to respond to resilient core inflation over the next three to six months is actually quite high. And this is something we've been trying to stress in our research. And one of the reasons why we don't think we're, you know, close to that that investable bottom from a net liquidity inflection standpoint. Mm. Now, maybe you know, closing question here. I'd love to get your your take on. You just were alluding to it right there, but you know, one of the big takeaways I think for a lot of people, but certainly for me during COVID, is what's happening in the real economy is not necessarily correlated to what's going on in the financial economy, right? Because we basically saw the real economy implode, and at the same time, you know, financial assets had two banner years, right, back to back. And that was largely based on liquidity of what we've been talking about. When we're talking about this impending recession in the next like 12 to 18 months, I guess my question to you is, you know, does the stock market necessarily need to crater further than it already has if that recession is the case? And, you know, if not, like what's your kind of target or how are you roughly thinking about the S&P over the next 12 months? Yeah. So uh, just from a net liquidity standpoint, if you look at kind of our projections of where net liquidity could be over the next three, three months, we think the market could bottom somewhere around, you know, 3,200 at some point in mm-hmm. Q1 of next year. Um, that makes a lot of sense to us just, just in terms of some of these dynamics we've highlighted from an economic standpoint that are contributing to uh, to that continued decay of net liquidity. Um, you know, obviously that that's, that's that would be pretty, pretty draconian um, if you kind of think about that in Bitcoin terms and whatnot um, on, a, on a beta adjusted basis. You know, this it's not, it's not a good scenario, but I, I would definitely agree with you. And I'm, I'm really glad you called it out. You're one of the few, uh, you know, hosts, podcast hosts that I've heard actually just say that look the stock market is not the economy like the economy was sucked in 2020 and, and even in the early part of 2021 and it was just gangbusters for markets and gangbusters for crypto and, and now it's vice versa because again net liquidity is the most important thing in all financial markets it's it's hard to predict with you know you know impre- you know impressive precision at a, on a particular interval basis but if you get the trend right you're going to get the trend in asset markets right and so in mm-hmm. our opinion you know, we're, we're not quite at the, the appropriate you know, thresholds for, for some of these important pivots that the market wants to price in. That doesn't necessarily mean markets can't you know, rip higher from a positioning standpoint. There's always positioning flows, which is something we haven't talked about, but we spend a lot of time on, on helping investors understand those dynamics as well at 42 Macro. Um, but just from a macro standpoint, like the macro is actually get, getting worse. Um, there's only been one really positive macro data point from the perspective of net liquidity tracking um, that I've seen in the last few weeks, which is um, the employment cost index. Um, that's the broadest measure of wages and salaries that we get uh, in the U.S. economy, um, you know, spending benefits, et cetera. And on, on a private sector basis, we slowed 190 basis points to 4, 4.2% on a three-month annualized basis in Q3. So um, that was really positive. Now, again, 
4% is double what the Fed needs it to be at in order to suggest that we're getting positive outcomes on the inflation front. But that pretty significant slowdown was, was a, a, you know, might've been the first real kind of shot across the bow that the sort of second run, second order inflation um, dynamics that the Fed really is cared, concerned about most. And the reason they're tightening still into an obvious deceleration in growth is because of that second order in, in inflation, uh, uh, sort of the fear of the second order inflation episode. And for by all indications, at least according to that data point, that fear should be, you know, kind of going, um, should be declining. Yeah. Darius, you've been generous with your time, my friend. Uh, the, clearly, viewers can tell by you know the conversation that we just had, but your work is super top quality. What is the best way for people to follow you, learn more about 42 Macro, subscribe to your products? Oh, I appreciate you, Mike. Thank you, man. Uh, so yeah, come check us out at 42 Macro. Um, you know, I, I kind of my saying is uh, we do institutional macro for everyone. You know, so it's a very much an institutional product in terms of the quality uh, and the kinds of tools that we use and, the, and, and you know, the jargon that we're using. Um, but we do very much do. I think we do a, a pretty good job of distilling it all down into helping, you know, retail investors make very, you know, specific, actionable, um, um, you know, kind of pivots in their portfolios. You know, we try to, you know, take a holistic approach to portfolio construction as opposed to a bunch of rifle shot trades. And for better or for worse, it's uh, it's really done us really well, done our subscribers really well in terms of, you know, helping them make money this year. It's been it's been a tough year to make money and, unless, you, unless you've had someone really kind of helping you drive uh, drive the bus. Thousand percent. Yeah, I could say yeah. as a as a retail investor who's extremely proficient at losing his own money, definitely very <laughs> actionable. Uh, I think like the, a lot of the information is correct, but also just very actionable stuff, man. It's you're doing really great work. So um, I always look forward Thank to our you. chats. And uh, guys, if you're listening, definitely check out Darius's stuff. And uh, Darius, we'll have to do this again soon. Of course, man. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure to come on, man. You're you're one of the best people in terms of just asking the questions that matter. And so I just want to say uh, congratulations to you. I know I saw you guys got to um, thank you about hundred thousand um, subscribers or something like that. I'm not the followers or something, yeah. but uh, yeah. it's well deserved, yeah. man. You guys are killing it. Thanks. Appreciate it, buddy. Appreciate you. I will uh, chat with you soon. Cheers, man.